When it comes to discussing our bodies, we often get a little uncomfortable. Women's health issues are often seen as off-limits, taboo topics we just don't talk about. It's time for that to change. Let's talk. Welcome to the Brave Mama podcast, where we are going to do exactly that. Discuss everything from periods to pregnancy, motherhood to menopause. No topic is off-limits. Join Stephanie Thompson, the brave mama and author of The Day My Vagina Broke, as she asks other brave women about their personal health challenges and triumphs. You will learn, laugh and cry as Stephanie finds out everything you wanted to know but were too afraid or embarrassed to ask. So, grab a cuppa and enjoy. Hi there and welcome back. I wanted to let you know that when I first sat down with our next guest, I wasn't thinking that the conversation would end up where it did. But I'm so glad because it ended up pivoting into something else and it's just perfect timing that this week is National Families Week and it's really celebrating stronger families and stronger communities. And here at Brave Mama, I see us as a family. We're a huge online community of women living with pelvic organ prolapse, but it goes beyond just connecting via social media. We are a family. We support one another we look out for one another. And so if you are feeling alone on this journey with prolapse or even just motherhood in itself, you can join our community and there's a direct link in the show notes below. Now, this conversation with Nellie Harden, who is the founder of the 6570 Project, she's a podcast host and a mama of four girls, really dives deep into the architecture of what it means to be a parent in a way that builds those super strong foundations for your children and your entire family. I know that by the end of this episode, you are going to love Nellie's analogies and her stories that really paint a picture of how to be the parent that you probably idolized to be. And there's things in there that I had never heard of, like octopus parenting, So just before we get into the episode, we're going to have a quick word from our partners at the Continents Foundation, who are kindly supporting us in this episode today. Hey mama, you really don't have to feel alone on this journey. If you've ever experienced poor bladder or bowel control, and you don't even know where to start, just know that it could be better managed or even curved with the right treatment. If you do nothing, it could potentially also get worse. So if you're looking to find help, you can call the National Continence Helpline on 1-800-33-0066 and speak directly to a nurse continence specialist for free and confidential advice. You can call anytime from Monday to Friday from 8am until 8pm. So go and get the help you deserve. Hi, Nellie. It is so, so lovely to have you. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is a treat. We would like to find out a little bit about who was Nellie before becoming a mama. Oh, okay. Nellie before a mama. Well, right before I became a mama, we went through a few years of infertility. So right before I became a mama, I was just really, really wanting to become a mama. And then, <laughs> but um, I'd say before that, I am, and I still am, an adventurer. And so I love to get outside. I love to be goofy. We, you know, even 
then and now, I, you know, just random dancing and singing. If I could live in a musical, I would not be unhappy with that. But unfortunately, that's not the world I live in. You know, I see all these movies with these big dance scenes in the streets. I'm like, why doesn't that happen when I walk in the streets, you know? <laughs> I've always been very curious about the world around us. I was a biologist and psychologist and behaviorist. And so I just am curious. I'm a curious little bird and I love to just find out. So I learn, I teach, I learn, I teach, I learn, I teach. And that is what I've been continuing to do all my life. Do you know, I just, I actually could picture you dancing in the middle of a musical just then, <laughs> like you're going out to get your shopping and like, here, here. who wouldn't want a world like that? When you said that, right? Like, yeah. Why don't we do that? <laughs> we teach our kids when they watch Disney yeah. about that this is what happens and then they go out and it never happens. Why? <laughs> No, I don't know. Yeah, like buying flowers in the park and all of a sudden everyone knows all of the song and all of the steps. <laughs> it's magical. I love it. I love it. So you did just touch on just very briefly there that you went through some infertility. And mm -hmm. I guess it's important to, for, for everyone to share their, their journey to motherhood, I think. And so obviously that wasn't easy for you. No. Um, did you want to talk about that a little bit more? Sure. Yeah. In all of my journeys as a woman and then having four young women of my own, I think it's really important to be open and honest about your journey because the person next to you is probably touching in on that story at some point or another and you can help them along with that too. I had like all the hopes like anyone else does. We had been married a couple of years and we were like, okay, so now we're going to have kids and then it wasn't happening and it still wasn't happening. And Lots of procedures, lots of medications, lots of everything. And it got to some very dark places, uh, being very angry with anyone that I saw that was pregnant, right? Oh, yes. yes. And one of the things that we did, which I can't say that I regret, it's just not for everyone because everyone's situations are different. But one thing that we did is we kept it completely to ourselves. So it was only my husband and I that were going through this together. And we did that because we didn't want to be reminded of this everywhere we went. So with our family or like our extended family or anything like that, I didn't want to go to family barbecues and have Aunt Sally be like, so how is the, you know, how is it going with baby? You know, you just need that escape because it encompasses so much of your life and your emotions and your mental game that. I needed other people not to play a part in that play. And we kept it all to ourselves. And it's a double-edged sword. And it was really hard a lot of times. Uh, a lot of times because people would be like, so you've been married a couple of years. You have a house. Like, time's ticking. Where's this, you know, you know, where's the baby? We're like, oh, we're just, you know, waiting a little longer. <laughs> and and we look at each other. We're like, actually, we're not. And it's terrible. But um, and you guys so, are carrying the load of that. Because they say, yes. right, when it's. When you don't talk about it, you carry it. And that would yes. have been pretty heavy, I can imagine. Yes, it was. And we talked about it between the two of us, obviously, all the time and, and consistently. But that was that was our journey and that's what we did. And I talk with other women that are going through things like that right now. And some people are all about it. They post day by day how everything is going on social media and that works for them. For us, that was our keeping it between us was our story. And I think the point is, there's no wrong or right way. Just make sure it's right for you. 
I love that. And especially because then there's no judgment. There's no wrong or right way. And I, I resonate exactly with what you were saying because we, my husband and I did something very similar to you and your husband. We didn't share it. And funnily enough, because I was teaching at the time, parents who obviously had kids in the school would either one of two things. Tell me if you had this. It was like, oh, where are the babies? They just assume you either don't want them and you're selfish Mm. or you've got infertility issues. And it's like, oh, poor you. Mm. You know, like that was always. But then looking back, right, from a younger self, I probably did the same thing to people. Yeah. I probably said, oh, where's the babies? Because everyone loves this baby thing, which is weird in itself. (laughs) (laughs) Because then when you have them, it's like, oh, is this it? It's like the non-singing, dancing Disney movies. Like, oh, this is different. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what people were assuming. I think my... Because we we were only 22 when we got married. And so we were still, you know, I was... I was 26 when I had my first child. And so we were still pretty young. But Mm. yeah, I mean, people were looking at us and being like, wow, like, what could what else could they be waiting for? We just kept putting more obstacles in the illusion. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it was it was fine. (laughs) (laughs) We got through it. And but we went through one side of the pendulum to the other because we had no kids and going obviously uh, through infertility all that time. And then we had four kids in four years. That was a very strong pendulum swing. And between babies, two and three, since they were twins, and uh, four, my husband was admitted to a hospital for cardiac failure. And we went through two years. And I had my fourth baby within that time of procedures and medications and all of this stuff for him. The story was complicated. It was very complicated. We still bear the scars, but resilience of that today of all of it. That, wow. I'm just taking a minute to process that because I'm thinking four babies under four, Mm. throw in a set of twins (laughs) and a husband who you're caring for. How are you still sitting here, my friend? (laughs) Like I said, a lot of resilience was may was in the making back then. That's really where the work that I do today was truly born. So I lost my dad when I was only one. He died when I was super young. He was in his early 20s. It was a uh, car accident. I've always had kind of a carpe diem, you know, type of mentality when I was younger. But then, as you know, and probably many of the listeners do, if they've experienced it, when you're going through infertility and then you swing, you know, the pendulum and you have one or more or four or 10 kids, whatever, you get into survival mode really easily. It slips in there. And so then when my husband went into ICU and we did all this stuff for a while, and then he ultimately had heart surgery in 2010, Earth Day, actually, 2010. So we're sitting in the waiting room and it was at that point, now it's, it's much more of a routine surgery, but back then it was more experimental and we didn't know if he was going to make it. And we did know that all of the medication possibilities had been extinguished at that point. I was just like, no, like I grew up and I lost my dad super young. My mom did remarry when I was eight and I had my dad through that way too, but still I didn't want my, I didn't want to go through that myself. I didn't want my girls to go through that, obviously. Of course. And so that that carpe diem kind of came back, but not in a like, I don't know, dead poet society way where you're like, let's just sell everything and go backpacking around Europe or something. I don't know. But more of a what can we do today 
to make sure that we are taking the steps to where we want to be tomorrow and being very, very intentional about that. And so the 6570 family project, which is what I do now, that's how many days are in 18 years. And so that is how many days that we can wake up with intention and say, okay, at the end of this project, because I call parents architects, we're literally building the beginning of someone else's life. Our greatest project is this 6570 childhood that we are helping. We're building for, and then the second half of childhood, we're building with them. Being very intentional with each one of those days to know that we want them to leave home with this, which means I need to do this today. Sometimes it includes dancing in the kitchen like you're in a musical. <laughs> and having those strong foundations are really what we what we want for our kids, isn't it? I think as parents and having these conversations, we always want the best for them, but we want right. them to have those strong, steady foundations. And it's it's hard, isn't it? Yes, it's even when so you're doing hard. your best. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. As a, I mean, as a mum to four to four girls, with your birth and labour for all of them. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming they were all different. Mm, oh yes, in the mix. <laughs> uh, so tell us a little bit about that. What was that like? That transition to motherhood physically. Physically, I feel like every, at least I did, I got to this point. And I actually just recently on, uh, so two months ago, I was able to be in the labor and delivery room with a um, young couple that we mentor and I was with, and they're friends of ours. And we've been with them for years and years. And I was able to be in there. So it brought back all of this, right? And she got to this point too. You get to a point that you're like, somehow this is coming out and I don't want to go through the coming out process, but I want the baby, but I also want my body back and I don't want to go through the (laughs) in-between. So I definitely remember all of that with each one of them. And with my, my first child, I had to be induced. She was getting really big. I was past my due date. And then I really wanted to have a, um, a natural birth with my twins, but they were both breech. So I had to have a cesarean with them and a twin pregnancy, totally different than a singleton pregnancy. I cannot imagine people that have the triplets, quads, and um, all of that. I took them to term, and they were okay. six and six, nine when they were born, fraternal. Wow. So it was just basically like being pregnant twice at the same time. Yeah, it was an interesting process to watch my body go through everything it did. I had the carpal tunnel. I had the varicosities everywhere. In fact, when I got pregnant with my fourth child, third uh, third time, I actually had a really early miscarriage before my first, I guess it was my fourth time. But anyway, I looked at my leg. I am not kidding. We were away and I looked at my leg and my leg, my left leg was a little blue. And I was like, that's weird. I haven't, and it wasn't like blue, like it was starving from oxygen. It was just blue. Like my, the inside of my calf was really, my veins were uh, big and and blue. And I was like, oh, that's weird. It's like, I wonder. And I took a test and it was negative. And I was like, okay. I took a test 24 hours later. It was positive. I was like, I knew it. My leg turned blue. It was, (laughs) I knew I was pregnant because my leg turned blue because of all of the blood volume I had with the twin pregnancies. And then when I was pregnant that last time, my blood volume just started skyrocketing before I had enough hormone for that pregnancy test to even be positive. So I have never 
that you are the first person I have never ever heard of a blue leg as the the signal. I've heard like the tingling and the butterflies and things yeah. like that, but wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Goodness me. And obviously with vaginal birth and cesarean birth, there's obviously risks and benefits to all of that. Right. With with your three labors, did anything kind of happen to your body afterwards in terms of damage to your pelvic floor, especially carrying twins, I can imagine, did, that yes. you know of? Oh, yes. I have no feeling. In in my stomach area, I there's definitely a panel, I would say, of probably, I don't know, maybe 10 inches by 4 inches. And I have no feeling in whatsoever. And so, I mean, if I got stabbed, I'd feel it. But if someone is like pinching me or something like that, nothing. And wow. my skin was just stretched. I could not reach my hands around my stomach. They would not touch. I was so big. Um, I mean, scary big uh, with that. But um, yeah, but I, I mean, I took them to term and they were healthy and I got to bring them home right away. I definitely had uh, diastasis and my abdominal muscles had split apart, which I didn't realize that they had just because, I mean, after any birth, you're a little mushy for a while in the abdominal yeah. region, right? And my uh, fourth is her birthday is one day after my twin's second birthday. I got pregnant again and... It wasn't until I was probably about six months along in that pregnancy that I could really, like, you can always see the baby kick, but I could really, really see the baby kick. And I was like, uh, this doesn't seem right. turns out that I just wasn't protected. So I had to be a lot more careful in that one. Then I had to go back in afterwards and have that, uh, basically have a corset in in the front of me. And so I could be all stitched back together because it was like a good four or five fingers wide that I had a, a huge deficit. I mean, it, it was what it was and it was interesting. And my first baby was nine pounds. The twins were six and six, nine. And then my last one was 10 pounds. She just had a, she had a whole mansion in there to grow into. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good thought analogy. I'm like, yeah, well, if it has more space, then potentially... They can grow bigger, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she certainly did. Yep. <laughs> and so now the girls are grown up, or young women, we should now call yes. them, right? And yes. And what is the youngest? The youngest is 12, and okay. 12 and a half, and then I have two 14 and a half, and then I have one that's going to be 17, like, next week. Oh, wow, that is scary. My oldest is six, so I can't even think past seven, let alone <laughs> 17. <laughs> Yeah, it goes fast. Everyone says that. And mm -hmm. even seven years goes fast. I swear once they, I call it um, the great transition between the first half and the second half of childhood. And once they hit that and they're 9, 10, 11, whew, it just, it zooms. It really does. I wonder why. I'm, I'm a curious cat like you. I'm like, I'm just yeah. sitting here going, I wonder why 7, 8, 9, because I was about to ask you, well, what, what number is that? Because I want to know. <laughs> Is it because they become, they start to leave your immediate connection from you? And for example, just for our listeners, uh, we went away on a holiday and they had a buffet. We never would let our children go to that on their own without their parents because there were hundreds of people around. And I always think well, something's going to happen. I've got to be protective. But the first time at nearly seven, we let her go and get her own pancake. <laughs> she was like, oh my God, really? On my, by myself? 
<laughs> and we feel a bit proud, like, wow, she's really growing up now. That's amazing. And that yeah. just keeps happening, doesn't it? Now it I- does. I remember when we would sit by the poolside or we'd go to the ocean or what have you. And I'm like, I can, I see other people like sitting and reading a book and their kids are over there. I just can't even fathom. Now we're to that point. Today, we have a spring festival in our our little town here. And so we were walking around, we saw some friends of ours, and they have little girls who are, I think they're maybe six and eight or so. Mm -hmm. She's like, oh, where are all your girls? And I said, they, they went to a neighboring town and they went thrifting and out to lunch and everything. She's like, wow. I was like, I know. It's crazy. That is definitely part of it. They start to have experiences that are apart from yours. So there's this branching of family dynamic to where they are experiencing things with different people, different environments that you are not a part of, whether that's school, sports teams, friends, sleepovers, whatever it is, that starts happening more and more and more, which means they have to create a lot more independence than they ever did before. And helping you partner with them at that point, because you can't just spoon feed them life anymore. In the beginning, you're spoon feeding them life, like here's your pancake, go clean up your toys. Now let's do this. Now let's do that. But when they're out on their out on their own, They need to be able to make smart decisions, even if you're not in their immediate vicinity. And so you really need to partner with your child during that second um, half of childhood in order to equip them because it's adult education when you get into that second uh, half of childhood. Can you see me? I'm like holding my heart. I'm having like little (laughs) mini panic attack just going, I can't even imagine the day when she's allowed to do something like that. I think I'm probably going to have to do some work with you, I think, as a, as a parent to be able to let go. And interestingly, though, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. As a teacher, I noticed that I am like the parents who had been through infertility treatment. They are very different to the parents who conceived easily or naturally because yes. I feel like there is an extra layer of protectiveness. Having gone through something for five years, in my case, to have her... It was like, I can't let go because I, I wanted you and I willed you into this life so hard that if I let you go, you're too precious. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I hands down agree. I hands down agree. I have a picture of my oldest in our downstairs study and it's a frame that we bought and she is, I don't know, maybe five days old in this picture and it says dreams do come true because It was such a dream for so long and we just didn't think it was going to happen for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I, there's this extra hedge of protection that is just around that. And I see that in, and it, of course it's an average, it's a overgeneralization. Sure. But I, when I back up and I look at everything from an aerial view from all these different families I work with and all these different families I know, that is definitely a continuance that I see. I can completely relate with that. It's almost like you loved them so hard for years before they ever existed because you were trying so, so hard. So yeah. even though my daughter is 17, I have like hardcore loved her for 20 years, you know? Easily. I, I st- And it feels like the, the part that we miss in this conversation in particular is that, yes, we wanted children, but 
we love them so hard as an extension of ourselves. Mm. So it's the love of ourself that we're probably missing when they do start to do things independently because they're such a huge part of you forever. Absolutely. And that grief, I guess. Yes. Oh, it is completely the same stages of grief uh, go with this detachment that is happening. And when I start to think that detachment starts at birth and then it has these periods of huge escalation and then backing off a little bit and a big escalation again and backing off a little bit. I always picture I I have a story that I tell my my clients and, and group. We during the first uh, part of childhood, we are building this boat and we are building it for them. And we are putting everything in there that we possibly can and building it with all of these protections and what have you. Well, during the transition, you take them by the hand and walk them and the boat down to the water. You put them in the boat and then they're in the water and you have this rope that is connected between the two of you made out of truth and trust. And that rope is 6,570 feet long. Half of that rope is already gone. Some days you're pulling it in. Some days you got to let a lot go. Some days you're pulling a little bit in, but it's this gradual process. But when they're out in that boat and you're teaching them, this is what you do when there's a storm. This is what you do in order to maintain. This is what you do in order to build relationships with other other people so you can have community, right? All these teaching things in this adult education that they're in during the second half of childhood. When I'm working with families This is why I don't just work with kids and I don't just work with parents. I work with the whole family together. I see the family as a team. Parents are the captains and the whole team works together. It's because there's so much that if we are the first and they're mirroring what we are doing, then there's a lot of work that we can do for ourselves that then we can pass on the best of ourselves and help them become the best of themselves. And it really is this beautiful process of, helping people with the vision, discipline, vulnerability, and resilience as a family working together. I think you've just made me speechless. <laughs> I, just, I just, the analogy and then make, I think because you know why, we are right here with you right now in that sense of we've just put our firstborn in the boat, mm-hmm. it feels like. Yeah. Whereas we've still got the, the little one attached to us. Yeah. I feel like I've just put her in the boat and I've sent her off to school, but I'm I'm holding that rope really bloody tight, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> much to her dismay because I don't know what to do. And I, I, I know we joked about it before that I need to work with you, but it just really hit me that as a family, I've been an educator for 20 years. It doesn't mean you know how to parent. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean that I know how to let my own rope go. I can tell other parents to do it easy because yeah. it's not me. But now, as you're saying that, I'm like, I got goosebumps. Nelly, I got goosebumps. Like, we are connecting at the perfect time because it mm. does feel like she's this little one in the boat. And I'm like, well, but what happens if other boats knock you over? What happens yeah. if other boats don't let you go and sit next to their boat? And what happens if pirates come and take you? <laughs> oh, I can relate with all of that. And yes, that's exactly what we are doing in the program that I have. It's called Map to Maturity. It really is establishing where you're exactly at now, exactly where you want to be later and making sure we're taking those steps now because we're building the map in order to get there. That's what we need to do as as parents, as architects of our family. We are building, designing and planning the beginning of someone else's life. And if we can build in them a strong foundation of confidence, 
and respect and wisdom, then they will be so set up for life as an adult and not have to go through a lot of the garbage that we went through as adults. There's there's two things to that, right? The first thing is I really I just it's just like a light bulb moment like oh my god of course it's just like women's health we don't know a lot about our own anatomy our Mm -hmm. own bodies we're not taught it either historically we're not generally speaking and so we have to navigate this space as we're in it even with childbirth you're navigating and learning while you're pregnant like you're already in it and you're trying to work out how to do it it's the same with parenting we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. I think people on you know on social media make out as if we know what we're doing, but behind the scenes you post this beautiful photo and then 5 minutes later you are yelling at your children to stop doing something for the 10th time. Yeah. And it's not getting through and yeah. you think, god, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm I'm failing. This is horrible. Like this is not what they told us in the movies what parenthood is like. But then the second thing is Now it's really hit me that we don't know how to do it because we're not taught it. I mean, people say there's no manual that comes with babies. But then most of the time the conversation stops there, like full stop. But you're now just taking away that period. If you can do this and you can learn and we can show you how to roadmap it doesn't have to be that way. I don't think anyone has ever actually said that. And that's a, it's so funny you bring that up because that's exactly what I say. No one gives you the manual, but let's let me help you write yours because your manual is going to be different than your neighbors, different than your yeah. sisters, different than anyone else's. And that was the problem I was running into with different programs. I mean, I have a 17-year-old. I've been doing different programs and mentorships and things for a long time. And it was very cookie cutter. It was very one size fits all. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you something. It's not even one size fits all within my family. All four of my daughters are very different. Mm -hmm. And so even if I had one mode of parenting that was all my own, I can't do that with all four kids. They respond differently. They need different consequences. They need different discipline tactics. And so developing something where I can help you become the expert on your each one of your children and write your own story, write your own manual. It mm. is such a beautiful thing. That's so empowering, even to to know you as a parent in the style that you like, because one minute I will do something and I'm like, yeah, I'm nailing it or I'm not. And then an hour later, my husband will do the exact same thing, but I'll critique him. <laughs> and I'll be like, I wouldn't have said that, but Probably I would. And it's funny when you hear your husband say something that you have said, you're like, oh, God, do I sound like that? (laughs) I'm making out as if we're the worst parents in the world, but I'm actually being really transparent in the things that we find the hardest and being that real and raw because I think if we don't talk about it, then we're never going to see improvement. And I don't know about you and your experience, but I think when you struggle in parenting – it can only then transpire into your marriage. Oh, yes, absolutely. That That's a beautiful side effect of the work that I get to do is this uh, cohesiveness that comes together with the spouses when they get on the same page. There is a extensive questionnaire that I have people put together when I start working with them so I can get a real, you know, 
a, a real, real view um, of what, it, who they are, you know, what's going on in the home, how they feel about things. And I have been told many times that questionnaire alone was worth it because never mind the other three months of the program, but that questionnaire was worth it because it, it brought together the spouses to ask questions and answer things in a way that they hadn't looked at things cohesively in a very, very long time, if ever. And so, yeah, it is very powerful to have this unity coming together and learn how to be captains of this family team together and everybody's not pulling and pushing I'm sorry not pushing against one another but pulling for each other and that it's it's really neat to see because again you use that boat analogy if everyone's kind of rowing in different directions you go nowhere exactly and potentially (laughs) sink a lot of families do unfortunately sink and they don't survive in that boat together and they have to go and do their own journeys so but if you're all kind of rowing in that same direction the majority of the time you're probably going to get somewhere. And interestingly, when we look at ourselves now, and even only at 40 did I realize that I'm worth doing self-development courses Mm. or I'm worth having coaching, I'm worth all of these things. You're like, wow. But then to do it as, because really it just opens communication channels, doesn't it? And when we're communicating better, we are just on fire and achieve and do all these amazing things. But in your relationship, you feel like you only ever get that chance to advance when things are sinking like counseling mm. or something i don't right. you know but imagine being on the forefront i'm just thinking now and doing it first so that you can lead that your team it's just i yeah. was not expecting this conversation to go here <laughs> but it's gold it's so good think about it like this would you rather if you're standing on a cliff would you rather put a fence up so that you know where to protect yourself and stay safe or would you rather just wait for the ambulance at the bottom preparing especially for young teenage and like teen and tween young women and after the the transition into the second half of childhood uh within it and after it it is a tough time and the world is not making it any easier and not a newsflash for anyone is that it's not going to regress and become easier. It's only going to get more complicated. Parents today are parenting in a world that didn't exist when they were their children's age. And so we are learning along the way. We cannot just keep putting up bubbles around our children because then when they do leave home that bubble is going to burst and they won't know how to be they won't know how to express who they are in the world out there we really need to prepare them during this second half of childhood especially prepare them how do you show up in your confidence right how do you respect yourself how do you respect others how do you respect the world how do you grow in this practical wisdom and also understanding your own emotions, understanding other people's emotions and all of this. So many times we see parents that are having their young women, they're like, okay, so as long as they leave home and they they got A's or A's and B's and good marks in school, then we succeeded. Well, that is one thing. And then you also have to question, why did they get those marks? Was it just because that's all they were focused on? And were they defining themselves by those, right? If I get this, then I am a good person. It's so funny when you look at it, if you write it down on paper and look at the sentence, 
If I get an A in calculus, therefore I am a perfect person. We know that because we are at the other end. When I went through high school, my marks were terrible. I probably failed a lot because I was there for the social aspect. It was very clear in all of my school reports. Stephanie talks too much. Da 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 da. And now look where we are. We look in a where we are. Podcast. <laughs> at the time, I was not a good girl, and my right. sister, who was highly intelligent and got A's and was the captain was a good girl mm-hmm. and I used to get at high school why can't you be more like your sister mm. but now coming into your own and I think I want to go there a little bit if you don't mind when we talk about you've got your four daughters and they're in that very vulnerable are they always vulnerable oh, yes <laughs> let's just tell it the way it is <laughs> in all in that age group of being influenced by friends and in high school and in wanting to figure out who they are as a person How do we talk to them about their pelvic health in particular Mm. to to not only keep them safe, but to keep them educated? Like you seem to be, to me, um, really open and have really great Mm. conversations of trust. How do you talk to your girls about that stuff? Honestly, we just never made it a weird thing. And I talked to some people that it was up until they were in high school, it was like faux pas to talk about. We don't we don't mention that. And those are just yeah. private parts and everything, which they are private. And and letting them know those are private parts, but still talking about them. Mm-hmm. And when you're going to the bathroom or I mean, I have four young women, so starting periods and all of that, just making it a natural thing to talk about experience, have questions questions about and never making it like, oh, let's not talk about that. Or, oh, that's weird. I can't believe you're saying that. Just very matter of fact, but also loving. Just like if they came up and say, I skinned my knee, what do I do? If they come up and ask you a question about their pelvic floor or anything like that, then you're like, oh, so this is what you do. No problem. This has happened to me before too. Or if it hasn't, just be like, yeah, you know, I'll let me look on this. I'll just do some research and get back to you, but no problem. And so if they can see it, uh, see their entire body just as a part of who they are, right? It, it is the the mechanism that we are marching around in this world in, right? It is biology. It is our physical world. And if they can see it for all of the complexity and beauty and miracle that it is, then it's just become something easy to talk about. And, you know, I told you I was in the birthing suite with some friends of ours and it's a, she's a very young woman. She's 22. And, um, (laughs) My one of my daughters, she is in, I don't know, I think she's going to go into either veterinary or she's going to be an uh, obstetrician. I don't know. But <laughs> she watches videos all the time. She loves to watch birthing videos. She and she's 14. And she loves to watch the birthing process. And so when I was going in there, she's like, oh, be sure to watch out for the shoulder when the baby's coming out and all of this stuff. And I was like, okay. So, wow. you know, if they're interested in something like that, let them explore that. Women need obstetricians and gynecologists. Whatever the conversations are, just let the conversations come. And don't put up any walls because as soon as you put up a wall about a vulnerable topic, that wall doubles, triples, quadruples in size really, really fast. Really? How do you mean? Like explain that a little bit more, I think it would be. Yeah, I'm curious. 
It's just that if you are bringing up something that you are a little bit hesitant to bring up, I mean, think about if you're having a conversation with your husband about something that you're maybe feeling, maybe you were a little upset or or something happened and he was like, oh, it's fine. You get shut down like that. Or if they start to fix something that you actually just want to talk about, then you're like, never mind. I don't want to talk about it. And then there's this wall that gets built really, really fast. And so that's the same with them talking to you about anything on their bodies. And just if you show any signs that it is not vulnerable, it is vulnerable to talk about, but bad to bad to talk about, then it is going to build a wall very fast. And you want them. I mean, because if it's not you, who's it going to be that they go to talk to about that? That's the big question. And that's what we face with parenting all the time. If it is not you who's guiding them into adulthood, then who is it going to be? Some influencer on Instagram, some celebrity, yeah, YouTuber, some friend that you don't know what their core beliefs are, uh, a coach, like you just don't know. And we as parents are put into this position, this responsibility, this obligation and this blessing to be able to help them become the highest potential of themselves by partnering with them. You're not doing it for them. We can't be the helicopter parents or the lawnmower parents is another one. I actually heard octopus uh, parent the other day. Share yes. with us. What is yes, that? Yes, absolutely. I thought it was such a great visual. So octopus parenting is comes from there's this species of octopus that after it lays its eggs, the female, the, the mom, octopus, and I say this because I am a biologist also, like we cannot anthropomorphize, meaning putting human emotions in all of these things. This is instinctual for the octopus. It's not an emotional response, but we can relate to it as an emotional response as humans. So I just have to say that as biologists. So anyway, (laughs) the mom, after they lay the eggs, will sit there and guard those eggs to the point that she can starve to death and actually start decaying and disappearing into the water around her. And so sometimes we give so much of ourselves that we're literally just dissolving, right? We as women are dissolving into the world around us and we don't know where we end and where the world begins because we are just so focused on making sure and protecting, 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 right? And it just can't always be that way. Like today I had to, I, I let my daughter and two of her sisters, so three of my daughters, drive 45 minutes away. Was I scared? Heck yeah, I was scared. (laughs) I told her whenever my kids leave, I always say, be nice, have fun, make good choices. And I I was hugging her goodbye. And I was like, just remember, you have three quarters of my heart with you. And she's like, I know, mom. And um, so, you know, but you have to let them experience that that freedom and independence in in these doses as they're becoming adults, because it can't be an on off switch, because that on switch when they turn 18, or they leave home, it's not going to go well if you don't give them the experiences when they are in that second half of childhood. In that safe space of still yes. being in that family yes. you know, container. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Wow. It, it's, I think just going back a little bit when we said, um, it, in talking about private parts and safe spaces and things like that, 
I feel like we've gone a little bit too far the other way, potentially. I don't know. I would be interested to hear what you think about this. So I'm obviously writing a book, The Day My Vagina Broke. My kids know the word vagina. They also know that there's a difference between vagina and vulva and that they're Mm -hmm. different body parts. The same way my son knows that his penis is different to his scrotum and anus. We talk about that openly. Yeah. But we're the minority. And yeah. so when I took the kids to the local library the other day and they saw my book on the shelf and my son yelled out, Mom, there's your vagina book. <laughs> we all laugh. We have the exact same reaction as you did. But I'm pretty sure there are people in that room that thought, that's perverted. That's yeah. weird that a four-year-old can yell that out. Finding that balance is hard. And when you said you can get that external influence, I worry I worry too much, but I worry that potentially my little girl at school, when someone knows that her mum has a vagina book, will say to her that, that something's wrong about that. And then she'll build that wall that you were just talking about mm. with me. Yeah. Like the, it'll be a barrier where she'll listen to the influence of her friend and she won't feel okay to talk to me. Yeah. How do we get around that? So... Obviously, connecting and communication and bringing clarity to uh, conversations and where you're going to go are essential in parenting. And if there is a wall, you're going to see it. You're going to feel it because you're going to bring up something and she's going to shudder or she's going to be like, "Mm," you know, change the subject right away or what have you. And that is your cue to get curious, right? To be curious about what's going on. And just ask a bunch of questions and be an intentional listener. And if she, you know, says, well, I don't know, it just seems weird that you have a vagina book or whatever that is. And you can say, well, what do you think is weird about that? And it'll probably come out and be like, I don't know, my friend said it was weird. So I guess it's weird. It's like, well, why do you think your friend thinks it's weird? And just not accusing, not angry, not frustrated at all, but curious. When we can approach conversations with curiosity and being calm, uh, doors can fly open and the walls can crumble much faster. Yes. Uh, Yeah, I'm nodding a lot because I can see even where I've done that in the past, even in in your marriage. It's like sometimes I have to just say, just give me a minute and I go outside And I literally have to calm down to then be able to come back in and talk in a very non-highly emotional state. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because I'm not sure if you're you're aware or too much about pelvic organ prolapse or incontinence, but that constant physical pain in your body and you're holding it all day, it feels like your emotional state is always quite on. Mm. Yeah. It's always quite high. So sometimes you just have to remove yourself and go, just give me a minute. And then you come back, you're like... Right, I need to sit so I can talk to you. Right. So I'm not I'm not feeling this pain and agony because it's going to come out in my words. Right. And that makes total sense with brain chemistry too because when your pain responses are up, especially when they're up for a continued amount of time, you are regressing into your very um, ancestral monkey brain where it is fight or flight all the time. And so in order to be in your more frontal lobe where you have reasoning and logic, you need to very purposefully calm down, take some breaths, get back into that frontal lobe and be like, okay, now I can think. Now I can use logic again. It's a great place. <laughs> Isn't it, though? And I think in parenting, we often we we can't get back there quick enough. Like we want to calm down and we tell them to calm down. But realistically, 
we're probably actually needing to calm ourselves <laughs> before we can continue. <laughs> yes. When we find ourselves yelling, calm down. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. There is so much in this whole conversation and I feel like we could just talk forever. Yes. I do think I would love to know when you just talked about the analogy of the octopus mum, do you feel that having four children under four, you potentially had that happen to you a little bit too? I think it is inevitable that it can happen in the busyness of life. And it just so happened that, so I guess part of the story I didn't say is my husband had heart surgery on, on Earth Day in 2010. Well, five weeks after that, one of our twins actually had a near uh, drowning accident. She was gone and I brought her back with CPR and oh. it was a, it was a big experience for our family. She was completely gone. She wasn't with us. And then she was, and then we had to watch her for a year to see what neural responses she had and things like that. So those two events happening five weeks apart from one another really jolted, jolted us awake into this intention. And we started putting pieces together a little bit more, but it was not until 2012 that I started doing family work. My entire first part of my career was animal behavior. Okay. So I worked actually with marine mammals and in veterinary and all that stuff. And then I retired and then I went into for a few years while all of the crazy was happening. And then I started family work. Um, birthed out of helping other families create positive disciplines for themselves for the future. And when I started doing that's when I started really diving into a lot of the leadership and growth experiences. And a light bulb went off. I'm like, I wish I would have known a lot of this when I was at home, like before I left home. And so, and someone was literally on stage. I want to say it was probably 2014 or so. And he said, why do we wait to teach our kids about self-awareness and mm -hmm. personal growth and even personal leadership? Why do we wait until we're in our thirties, forties, or fifties? This crazy. is why so many people have really hard twenties and thirties. And so I was like, oh yeah. And, and I had my four babies next to me and I was like, yeah, we're doing this now. And <laughs> it's really funny because my oldest, um, she wants to be a therapist and she goes around and we were just on a dog walk the other day and she was like, yeah, all of my friends, they have problems and they come and sit next to me and they're like, oh, so I have this problem. Do you have like five minutes? And so she has these like mini sessions. And so I looked at her and I was like, so do you think any of that has to do with the fact that you've been learning and studying and applying some like personal growth strategies since before you can remember? She goes, yeah, yeah maybe. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> you knew the answer was yes, but you needed her to come to the answer. Yeah, I, I needed her to see that. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. It's really, really great. Oh, Nelly, this is so good. So tell me if people wanted to work with you, obviously we're in Australia and you're in the U.S., how could families like us connect with you? Do you do it all online or is it only in person or how does it work? Yeah, so I work internationally and I've been to Australia. Love Australia, by the way. Oh, uh, yep, I did some humpback uh, research up there in the Hayman Islands in the uh, Northeast. Oh, so, yes. So love me some Australia. But anyway, I do I do work internationally. And yes, it's all online. Unless you want to invite me to your house in Australia, I might come. So um, 
anytime, my friend. We have whales migrating oh. very, very soon. We would love to have you. That's oh, so my great. gosh. That would be amazing. So everything you can find, I like to keep it really simple. So NellieHarden.com has where you can uh, join our private parenting group. It's where you can get connected with the free parenting workshop I have called Ignite Her Joy. It is where you can find my Instagram, which is just at Nellie Harden and my Facebook and everything you can find through there. You're amazing. And I feel like we connect with people for certain reasons at certain times that we aren't aware of. Like I said, this conversation has gone very different to what I was expecting, but I'm so grateful for it. I can't thank you enough. Oh, thank you. This has been a really good conversation. A gift for me too. Okay, so I did promise you it was going to be a good one. I mean, who ever thought of octopus parenting? And as Nellie was saying that, I actually started feeling a little bit sad because I can resonate with it a little bit too much. You know how you see yourself sinking into the surroundings, your family, your house, And so I hope this episode can really plant some seeds for you about how you can change that, how you can no longer just meld into the life of being a mom and doing everything for everyone else. So I'd love for you to be able to sit down today and say, hey, mama, what do I need today? And go and do that. It can be a really tiny thing, like reading a chapter in a book, having a cup of tea or coffee hot calling someone that you miss and telling them that you miss them in real life with a real voice could be taking a bath on your own could be going for a walk listening to a podcast it could just be sitting in your car for 10 minutes before you go inside just to regroup depressurize the day a little bit before going back in and caring for others i hope you can do that today because you're important and you're worth it So I know that Nellie has taught me so much as a parent of young children and I absolutely think that we are going to be taking a bit of a journey with her because we don't have the answers. There's probably too many books to read for me to digest and to have someone walk with you and hold space and hold your hand through that process is probably really helpful. Here at Brave Mama, we have gotten on calls, on Zoom calls and and walked women through that process of newly being diagnosed to a point where they now feel like they can move forward with their life even still living with prolapse if you're listening right now and you can hear my voice and you're like I want some of that you absolutely can reach out to us at stephanie at bravemama.com so send me an email you can also contact me on instagram I'm kind of hanging out there a little bit at the moment send me a direct message and say, I would like to hear that as well because I'm stuck. I've just been diagnosed with prolapse or I think I've got prolapse and I don't even know where to begin. I'm finding social media overwhelming and I want you to hold that space for me. I can do that for you. This is part of the Brave Mama family and the Brave Mama community. So we invite you in to do that. So until next time, bye for now. Brave Mama.